Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you can take now to prepare for the journey. I'm Jerry Perullo, recently retired Chief Information Security Officer who spent 20 years leading the cybersecurity program at a Fortune 500 firm. I'm launching this podcast to share what I've learned and what I'm going to continue to learn as I explore opportunities beyond the day job for technology executives today. So given that this is episode one, I thought I'd start with a bit of a, a landscape view on what you hear about out there. So, you know, let's go through the pie, if you will, of different opportunities that we hear about. And then I'm going to pepper that with my insights thus far, uh, what I think I've learned that I've yet to prove out, and activities that I found were worth performing before making the decision, before taking the leap to maximize the number of opportunities available. So first off, it's worth saying that we aren't talking about traditional retirement here, right? I mean, if you're looking to completely step out of the workplace, sever your income, there's plenty of resources to help you do the math and decide when that's financially prudent. And that really does come down to mathematical decision about money and time. So rather, we're going to focus on what some people I've come to find call the portfolio life and non-traditional sources of sustainable income that may drive you to consider such a move earlier than you would have otherwise and to change those timelines. And so those options are going to be focused on ones that are unique to technology and cybersecurity executives in today's environment. So you're not going to hear a ton about more generic ambitions like just getting rich in real estate or trading NFTs and that sort of thing. There may be a lot of viability in that, don't get me wrong, but I'm going to focus in this podcast on opportunities that are uniquely available to people with a background like mine. So let's break those down a bit today. And then in future episodes, we're going to zoom in on what I like to call the mechanical details of each. And wherever I can, I'll share real world experiences and actual numbers and get into some detail here. So to get right to it, we're going to talk about advisory work, consulting, investing, board work, entrepreneurship, teaching, and volunteering at a minimum. That's a lot. So the good news is that you don't have to worry about not being busy once you, air quotes, retire. But as I touch on each of those today, I'm going to talk about the opportunities that are widely available, sure. And then I'm also going to focus a bit about what you can do at what I'm calling T minus five. So in other words, five years before you actually want to stop getting a paycheck. And, and then I know it's going to be inevitable that I can't resist getting off topic here and there. And because my head is full of anecdotes and opinions and experiences as a chief information security officer. So I sure I'll pepper things in that'll be completely germane to people that are still in those roles and working today. And I won't feel too bad about that because I think that's just the, the type of uh, barroom banter that we all get into. First off, let's you know start kind of chronologically, if you will, and go back to that T minus five. And in the things that I'm talking about, you'll be able to self-select what are these things that I really need to worry about five years before I want to leave versus what are things that I can get away with rushing to do three to six months before I'm out of there. But no matter what, building, maintaining, and utilizing your network are huge. You know, and a lot of times people think about that in a very transactional way and they think about it as sales, but think about the personal nature of it too. And just things like being able to have discussions about retirement with your peers in cybersecurity, 
So get involved in groups like information sharing and analysis centers or the vendor-sponsored groups or the big four consulting-led roundtables, all of those things, and get to know your peers that are chief information security officers or CIOs or CTOs or whatever it may be. Get to know them in advance. Now, some of them, you're going to have some immediate tactical reasons to share information. You're going to get into groups like that, and you're going to talk about attacks that happened yesterday and what controls you're going to implement. It's going to be great. But that's separate from chemistry. And so you're looking in those groups to find people, and you will make friends in those groups, and you will find people that you just feel like you have a stronger rapport with, and you'll hit it off and immediately be able to share things more candidly. And those are the ones that are going to help you more when it comes to things like career advice and thinking about retirement and evaluating other opportunities. So as you get close to that T minus five and you get into it, identify people who already retired. You know, once you build that community, then that's going to feed into some people that end up rolling out of the workplace. So there's your initial group that you want to talk to about it. And I found that really comforting. I reached out to a number of people that had retired as a CISO and I became really attuned to it. And I would notice on LinkedIn whenever people would suddenly step out of that workplace. And I saw that pattern and I would reach out to them. And, and thanks to having an established rapport over the years, they were very accommodating and they were happy to reach out and talk with me. And some of the things that I would ask them about are what was a surprise, right? What, what went better than you thought it would and what went worse? And I would share some of my fears. So, you know, a classic one, uh, I mean, I was uh, chairman of the board of, of FSI SAC and CISO of this amazing fortune juggernaut company in financial services. And so people answered my calls. You know, my calling card worked really well. People wanted to hear from me. They were willing to give me a lot of time. And so I recognized that that was all going to go away the minute that I lost that business card. And so I was willing to deal with that. And I understood that I had to accept that. But I figured, let me just share that fear and talk to these CISOs that had left financial services or big technology or whatever it was going to be and just ask them to validate that. And they shared that they had the same fears as well. And some people told me it's not as bad as you think. You know, people are still very interested in, in your experience, in what you know from actually sitting in that chair for so many years, even though you're out of it now. So you're not going to totally fall off of a cliff. And other people, and the most valuable ones are always the most candid ones, but other people, you know, they, they did validate. But let's be honest, it, it will be different. I remember one guy, and in the way he put it, he said, yeah, I realized that all those people that were laughing at my jokes were just doing it because of my title and who I was. And they're not really laughing at the jokes anymore. And I think that really summed it up pretty well. But, you know, you get those fears out, you talk them through, uh, you want people to confirm and admit that some of those are real or else they're just kind of lying to you. But at the same time, just going through it will give you a lot of comfort around that. So you talk to these previous retirees and then you'll find out from that and pivot into, well, what things did they explore and what kind of value did they get? What worked, what didn't? And you'll feel like you're really getting ahead and reading the future there. When you're building that network, I think it's really important to not be so transactional. And like everything's transactional to a degree or we're just fooling ourselves. But what I think makes more sense now is to think about the time horizon of that. And instead of everything being, well, what am I going to get out of this in the next week, if not three months? Be willing to admit that you may not get anything back out of a relationship for years. And you may not get something directly from that person. But by having this network and keeping those relationships alive, you will learn immensely and you will have people that share unique experiences. And while you may not agree with all of them, you'll be able to take the average of them. 
So think about building goodwill as you're going into the second half of your career and not burning bridges. And that can be whether you're talking to peers, it could be whether you're talking to vendors. When when you're talking to uh, certainly peers within your own company and colleagues outside of cybersecurity, these are all people that are going to be very helpful to you down the road. Because especially when you step out of that seat as a practitioner, you're branching out in the business. So people on the business side are going to be key board directors. So play the long game, if you will. Think that you're building goodwill because you are and don't burn bridges. So have those points in mind as we jump a little bit into some of these specifics here. So let's start out with advisory work. What does advisory work mean? Everybody hears about that. Oh, you're going to be an advisor. You're going to do advisory work. And they're not very specific about it. And it's easy to just think, well, we're just going to float around and be called an advisor and somehow money is going to appear out of the blue. Like everything in life, that's not accurate. That's not the way it's going to be, of course. There's something serious to it. And, you know, I'm establishing my vernacular here. And I'm going to continue to distinguish between advisory work and what I call consulting work. We all know what consulting is, but there's a gray area there. And so I'm going to spell it out. So advisory work to me, and in the sake of this discussion, is really about helping startups and helping businesses out that are crafting and delivering a cybersecurity product or service. So I'm distinguishing that and differentiating it from helping a company actually establish a security program, which I'm going to bundle under consulting. Now, there's a difference in working 40 hours a week as a consultant and actually chopping some wood, so to speak, versus coming in a few times a month or a few times a week and really just helping set direction. And that is, yes, literally more advisory. You're going to be offering more advice, but I'm going to bundle those all together under consulting, meaning you're helping somebody actually create a cybersecurity program, run a cybersecurity program, make cybersecurity strategic decisions. Whereas what I'm going to call advisory is helping these companies get off the ground that are trying to look for advice on go-to-market. They're trying to figure out what would a CISO's point of view be? What functionality would you have valued? How much would you have been willing to pay for this? At what point would you switch vendors because it's getting too expensive? That's classic advisory work. And it's super valuable to you because you've invested a career in building these unique viewpoints that are gonna be highly valuable. So what can you do early on with that? For one, work closely with vendors. I mean, you don't have to kowtow and capitulate. If, you, if they're not offering what you want, so be it. That's fine. Move on. But when one of them is, get involved. Get into the customer advisory board. Speak to the founders. Learn about the product. And perhaps most importantly, have an eye beyond yourself as a customer. So don't be selfish and just demand that products are tailored to only work for you and your bizarre unicorn use case. Before you offer feedback and make any demands of a vendor, Think about whether it would only help you or your whole sector or the whole planet, their whole total addressable market. And you can share all of that, but feel free to qualify it and say, you know, what would be great for me? This. I don't think it's worth it for you to buy that, to build that, because it's not going to be very profitable for you because it would only really help me. But I'm just sharing it so you know, because maybe there's something I'm missing here. Or say this, on the other hand, this feature, if you would offer it, not only would I avail myself of it immediately and love it, but I can tell you all of my peers in this industry would jump to, to buy this immediately. Having conversations like that with your vendors today is basically making you an uncompensated free advisor. Build that goodwill. You're investing it. You're helping your own company at the same time because you're helping to, to drive value and create products that you need in your day job. And at the same time, you're giving it away and you're building goodwill. 
those type of relationships overnight can turn into compensated work. Now, advisory work turning into compensated work, I'd really recommend from my experience thus far that you view that as equity compensation and as an investment vehicle. And as a result of that, I'd recommend that you use the same criteria you would use to invest in something. I think that if you become an advisor with companies that you don't believe in, that you would not invest in, that you'd not write a check into, it will dilute your brand. Long-term, you will be insincere and it will show and it will hurt your credibility in earning additional future work. And it'll hurt your credibility with your peers and the cybersecurity community as well. So when it comes to that kind of helping out a company in cybersecurity, think to yourself, would I write a check into this? And then in future episodes, we'll talk specifically about how do you structure that equity advisory? How do you figure out how many options and all of that? And you know, you'll hear me say that I'm going to map it back to what kind of check would you have written if you were actually investing in something. But let's move back to T minus five, T minus three, while you're still in your seat. Think about just bartering goodwill for that, building relationships, and helping out these companies. Uh, it will pay back in spades. The next big area, let's jump into that consulting that I touched on a little bit. And I'm going to throw the term VCSO in there or, um, or fractional CISO in there. And there are definitely a lot of organizations out there that remarket this service. And you can be a contract or even full-time employee for one of those and be a virtual CISO. You can be full-time and help a lot of companies out and they'll farm you out and you're really just consulting for them. Or you can be a 1099 or contract-based employee and you can actually just be helping one company at a time for a few hours and then spending your time elsewhere. So you can do that through one of those vendors. And like anything, it's going to be a lot more profitable to do it directly. And there's not a lot of impediments to that. You know, if you're trying to staff 10 CISOs or 100 CISOs, it makes sense to have a central authority and really turn that into a professional organization. But if you're just worried about yourself, then you'll be able to score gigs like this on your own. So how do you do that? How do you get ahead of consulting opportunities? And what do you do at T minus five there? In that area, your customers are not going to be cybersecurity vendors. They're not going to be cybersecurity professionals, practitioners. They're not going to be any of the people that we like to nerd out with and talk about access control lists or about the latest reg SCI regulations or whatever it may be. So that's where your target audience is going to be the exact opposite. Everybody that's a layperson. So help the community there. When you serve in local not-for-profits, you're serving alongside other business leaders. And statistically speaking, they're probably not going to be cybersecurity professionals. You're going to be serving with councils general. You're going to be serving with COOs, CEOs. And those are the people that will need help with cybersecurity from someone like you after you retire. They're going to need help a lot more than anybody in security. There's going to be a lot more opportunities from companies that have no one practicing security today. So to be able to get on the radar of those companies, you want to get involved in different community groups that are going to have people outside of cybersecurity helping you out there. And when you're doing that, don't hesitate to share cybersecurity-related advice and actually bring metaphors on whatever problem set you're looking at towards what you do for a living when it comes to risk management, right? Because a lot of us are risk managers. Lawyers are risk managers. Business folks are risk managers. So you can speak that language and, and bring examples, and then they'll think of that later. And then, of course, within your company, again, always work with people outside of cybersecurity as well, because in the future, those are going to be people that are going to other companies and are going to need security help. Next big area. So we've talked about advisory and consulting a little bit each today. 
Let's go into investing a little bit more. And I mentioned that advisory can be a method of investing. But let's talk more broadly about angel investing. Whenever I first heard the term angel investing, I was completely certain that it referred to people that were investing two to a hundred million dollars, ultra rich individuals with maybe hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars available, and that an angel investment at a minimum was talking about seven figures into something. Over time, I learned that that's not the case at all. There are angel investments available from, let's say, $10,000 on up. There's a lot of angel investments that get done at the twenty-five dollars or $50,000 level. And then more at the $100,000 level or $250,000 level. But you're in a unique position as somebody with a unique subject matter expertise. So being a cybersecurity expert, you don't want to be competing on dollars when it comes to investing. And what I mean by that is if you're ever in a discussion and someone says, they'll only let you invest if you could spend more money, you want to write a $25,000 check and they say, sorry, we just can't let you in unless you're willing to spend $250,000. That means you're competing on money and on the size of your checkbook. All of a sudden, the room that you're in is huge. It's mostly people not in cybersecurity. Those mythical angel investors that I talked about and billionaires a moment ago are right in there alongside of you. And you can't compete with that. And you shouldn't compete with that. And if you ever win in that room, something's off because it means those other folks aren't interested in investing. So be careful. You want your check to be worth a lot more than the money on it. You want your check to be worth a lot more than the number that's printed on it because it should come along with your insight, your brand, your name, your experiences, and sometimes even your network. So when it comes to angel investing, definitely look for opportunities where you're valued and courted for your background and your knowledge. And at that point, the only reason why there would be any limit on the amount of money involved at all is just for skin in the game, meaning they want to make sure that you're investing enough that you're going to care about it and you're going to maintain that relationship and you're actually going to invest some of your time going forward to seeing the company be successful. And if the check size is too small, you probably would just forget about it and not help them out at all. But that should be the criteria, not about how much money they're going to raise. So T minus five, T minus three, let's say you're at a company and everything I just described is forbidden. You're not allowed to do that. That could certainly be the case. It depends on different companies and their compliance rules. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to be doing. There's actually quite a bit and you should be learning as much as you can during that time period. So first of all, seek out and work with professional investors. Think about your company and how that might position you. So work with certainly venture capital firms because they're gonna have access to an experience with the earliest stage investments. So we'll talk in a lot of detail about that vocabulary at some point and the difference in a seed stage and a series A and a series B and a convertible note versus outright equity and pro rata and a lot of concepts like that that are kind of Sand Hill Road venture capital concepts for sure, because I think they're really important to understand before you walk into this. But the advice for that T minus five is meet venture capital organizations. Now, if you happen to work in capital markets, there's a lot of opportunity there, right? They definitely want to work with you. And there's a whole pipeline. If you're in financial services, chances are that your firm already either is or has a subsidiary that's a VC or works closely with them for a lot of different synergistic reasons. And in those cases, get introductions to the folks and talk to them. VCs really want to talk to cybersecurity professionals, if not technology professionals, to get their insights from a buyer's seat. 
Venture capitalists have to context switch so rapidly among completely disparate and extraordinarily complex subjects that there's no way they can be an expert in all of them. Even the general partners at VC firms who came out of industry and were practitioners will be experts in one area. And even if they're smart enough to get educated on all of them, they just won't have the time. So they will inevitably be spending a lot of time evaluating investments that they just don't understand. And they know that. And so they want to force multiply by working with people like you that they can ask questions about an investment and immediately get a gauge on how realistic is this? Would somebody buy it? And you're not going to be the only person they speak to, right? If they're worth their salt, they're going to be talking to 10 of you. So don't worry about having a polarizing viewpoint or polarized viewpoint because they're going to average all those together and they're going to detect which parts of your viewpoint are kind of outliers and they're going to come up with, with a summary there. So when you're working with VCs, volunteer that time for goodwill while you may or may not have compliance restrictions on whether or not you're allowed to invest in a VC, but it's even more likely that you'll be restricted from being able to get compensated by a VC. So any screening that you do and any feedback that you give will most likely be uncompensated. If that's not the case and you have no such restrictions, then great, start earning early on. But if you do, don't give up. Volunteer it. Give it away for free. People love free. Volunteer that screening time. Again, you're building goodwill. And when you're working with venture capitalists, especially in that early time when you're doing them a favor, stop and ask them about investor logic, about the vocabulary, about the ecosystem, and about their experiences. So don't just give them advice on the flavor of the day and whatever investment they're considering and whether or not you would buy it, but also stop and say, what do you think? What are you looking toward? And I'll tell you right now, what you're going to find out early on is that they're going to spend 80% of their time talking about the founding team and only 20% on the idea or the technology, which is great because you're going to fill that piece in. That means that they're going to have a ton of great feedback. And that means they're going to have a ton of great advice for you about how to evaluate that other 80% that you don't do every day. Because if you're a technologist and, and you're used to spotting good or bad ideas, you're going to have to fill in that void of how do you evaluate a founding team before you can trust yourself to start making investments. So early on, Learn from the VCs, ask them about how they got to where they are, what they think about, ask them for big failures, for investments that they made that they regret and what they learned in the process. And you'll find they love speaking about that sort of thing. There's not a lot of opportunity that they get to talk about that. It's a very competitive environment and you are non-threatening. And you're also doing them some favors here by helping them out for free. So you're gonna get some amazing feedback there. Be helpful, again, use that same perspective about companies, about how they might serve the entire industry and not just your unique, selfish motivations as a buyer. And then also think about something that we call deal flow. So deal flow is all about even seeing these opportunities to invest. And it's a really big thing that fills the minds of non-cybersecurity angel investors nonstop. Doctors and company founders that are retired and professional athletes and everyone in between with money to invest are really upset that they're not exposed to the next great big thing. And they're really trying to figure out how to get there. You're uniquely situated and not having that problem. So you're going to get a lot of this deal flow and become aware of startups through these venture capital relationships. So when VCs are reaching out to you to screen things, Try to jump in and encourage them because they're going to be letting you know about a lot of companies that you may want to invest in along with them. So you'll have these co-investment opportunities where you help them evaluate their decision. And if you see them getting excited about it, and you are too, you can ask to co-invest. 
And that's where they may very well let you in with a very small check size because the venture capital group is about to write a much larger check. And they're just bringing in your insight and your advice if they allow you to come into it. And then another bit about deal flow is in addition to getting it out of those venture capital groups themselves, also make sure, and this is just one of many reasons, but make sure that when you build your network and you find your friends in this industry, that you don't just stick to people that are executives and more senior or people that have necessarily been climbing the corporate ladder. Make sure that you actually work with practitioners. So people like obviously your own employees and staff, but then their peers at your competitors as well. You should know practitioners up and down the ladder in, in a number of, of sectors because a lot of those are going to not only identify startups and identify the next pressing big thing that may be very helpful for you to be aware of as an investor or as a helper to a venture capital firm, but some of them are going to be founders themselves. If they have that relationship with you, then when they see that you pivot into more of this angel investing, then they're going to bring those ideas to you to get feedback and potentially to give you an opportunity to invest in it at the very earliest stage. So next, let's move on to the, the board of directors area. And I, I know this is going to be at least an episode in itself and maybe quite a few. So that's one where people most often have explicit restrictions and being able to serve in a compensated board. And when we talk about boards, we're often talking about public companies. And the reason is that there are strict requirements around public companies when it comes to board composition. But there's private companies that have compensated boards as well. So there's no shortage of articles about cybersecurity in the boardroom. We know that board directors are highly concerned about cybersecurity risk at their organizations. They're very curious about their own culpability and what they're expected to know and be doing around cybersecurity, and they are hungry for education around that. And that's led a lot of us to conclude that boards need, no less want, a cybersecurity expert such as an ex-CISO on the board of directors. In practice, I think it's much more accurate to say that boards crave business experts who have some degree of cybersecurity expertise. But the last thing a board really wants is a pure play chief information security officer eating up a board seat. So when it comes to any aspirations to serve on a board, all of your focus should be on expanding your knowledge beyond cybersecurity and even beyond technology. It should be about business and understanding what a board is there to do, what's going on, the decorum involved, what a CEO is going to prize from a board member, what all the dynamics are in the boardroom among the chairman and the CEO and the CFO and the general counsel. This is the area that you really need to learn. So first off, prize your time at that T minus five and beyond with your board or boards. When you have an opportunity to work with your board of directors, you need to see that as a prime opportunity to begin prepping yourself for the future. Listen to the directors, hear their concerns, think about them after the meetings, think about why you didn't predict those concerns would be articulated. What is their background and what is it that they're worried about that's much bigger than just cybersecurity? Keep in touch with the directors outside the boardroom. If you report to a specific committee, that committee chair likely would benefit from some time with you outside the actual, let's say, quarterly meetings. So embrace that. And when you're having those discussions, similar to with venture capitalists, pivot from just talking about risk and about cybersecurity programs and about metrics. Once that bit is done, pivot to asking introspective questions about directorship. What's it like to be a director on the board? What concerns do you have as a director? Do you serve on other boards? What was the path for you to get here? At what point in your career did you see yourself 
likely becoming a board director? When did it transition from some mythical aspiration into, wow, I think this is actually going to happen? All these questions are going to be super helpful for you to answer because you're wondering about the same things for yourself. There's also formal education that you can and should avail yourself of to prime yourself for a future as a potential board director. I think this area is undervalued and extremely helpful. I know during my career, I didn't take advantage of formal training very often. It was so important to me for my staff that I actually implemented a policy that required two weeks of training every year, a week of on the job or online training, and then a separate week of offsite training. And I actually found that even if you make that available to people, that you'll check in a few years later and found that they never took the time. So we actually had a task for our governance, risk, and compliance team to track the training that every employee in the cybersecurity department took every year and follow up with them before the year was over to take advantage of big summits and conferences and groups and see who wanted to go and also press people to even present at those. I knew it was that important, but there weren't a lot of opportunities for a chief information security officer. And I felt like through my community, through being involved with things like the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center and the CISO roundtables, I felt like I was getting a lot of that. And so I didn't need to necessarily invest the company dime on it. The types of education that would have appealed to me were, for one, getting my MBA, which I did, but I did that on my own dime. I didn't feel like the company had to pay for that. But then also just this general professional business education. But when it came to that, I felt like taking a course, for example, that would prepare me and better polish my CV to be a board director was selfish. I felt like by doing that, I was only trying to enrich myself and it wasn't bringing much to the company. And so it got to the point where I actually finally decided to do something like that at great expense. And I didn't expect the company to participate in that at all. And when I finally did that, and I did complete one of those courses, I did the NACD Accelerate program, which I recommend highly. By the time I was done, yeah, I'd like to think it will help my CV quite a bit for getting a board director position. It will definitely help me become an excellent director. I will understand infinitely more than not only a CISO would, but even a CEO. It just gives you so much more perspective to all aspects of the boardroom. But what I never realized was how much it would increase my value as a chief information security officer. There's so many discussions about CISO presentations to the board. What content should you present? What's the cadence? How much time should you get? Which directors should you be working with? What metrics do they want to see? What format of the reports? As CISOs, we share this information all the time. And we've all concluded that the only answers are these big surveys and reports that survey directors about cybersecurity in the boardroom and they survey CISOs. The real answer is we should all just be getting educated on how to be an audit committee member, how to be a risk committee member, how to deliberate strategy in the boardroom and CEO compensation. Those are all the things that we actually need to understand. And it doesn't mean we're going to join our board at the company, but being able to put ourselves in the shoes of the directors is of infinite value when it comes to figuring out how we're going to portray all of the data that we have. So I highly recommend that that T minus five or T minus 10 early in your career, anytime, feel absolutely justified in pushing to do something like the NACD Accelerate program, the Stanford Directors Consortium, and I'm sure there's many more. And don't feel like it's selfish and self-serving. As a matter of fact, that'll be the most value that your company can get out of any education for a technology executive. Separately, 
I recommend at some point during your career to evaluate the landscape and join the most important board that you are permitted to join. If you can't do compensated board positions and you can't become a fiduciary of a public company because of compliance restrictions, that's fine, but there's still a lot that are available. There's not-for-profit boards for sure, but in the community, those are often really fundraising gigs. By all means, do them for altruistic reasons, but don't think that that's going to help you at all prepare to be on a public board. It might help you work with some other people in a room, but hopefully you have a lot of experience doing that from your day job. But there are other not-for-profits, such as industry consortia. So there's groups ranging from things like the Financial Services Information Sharing Analysis Center, FSISAC again, that have boards that are full of senior executives that are making really critical, difficult decisions laced with everything from politics to financial responsibility to personalities to obligations to different governments and geopolitics and to organizations that actually perform functions. So in particular in financial services, there are utilities that bring in over a billion dollars a year and spend every penny of it because they are consortia. They are not-for-profits. And sometimes, and that's groups like SWIFT or DTCC, who has you know, major subsidiaries that are operating like that. And the participants that pay the dues and fund those will be financial services groups. I'm you know, a financial services vet, so that's what I speak, but there are analogs to this in any given sector. Serve on those boards. Sometimes they're cybersecurity themed in particular, so that's a no-brainer. You should be walking into there and helping steer value out of that. That's a really easy one to justify to your company. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're actual functional transactional facilities that aren't cybersecurity heavy. And normally you might have a business person from your company representing your interest. Fight for that. Try to get on there. There's low risk to your company. You can espouse any viewpoint and vote that they're looking for. And at the same time, cybersecurity is pretty hot right now. And they'd probably love to have somebody with your background and knowledge on a board like that. And once you do that, Try to model that after a public company board to gain the experience that you're missing out on otherwise. So as an example there with the FSISAC board, we really rebuilt it in the form of a public company down to creating committees that modeled exactly what the public exchange requirements dictate. So we had a risk committee and an audit committee. We discussed strategy. We had executive sessions where we discussed things like CEO compensation. So bring that to whatever board you join if it's not there already. And if you're looking to figure out how to do anything from drafting the latest bylaws to how do you nominate directors to how do you screen people, use public company guidance. There will be things that are obviously inappropriate for a not-for-profit and you don't have to worry about those, but err on the side of modeling after a public board wherever you can so that you're actually getting that experience. And you will find that the other cybersecurity or technology executives that are serving alongside of you highly value that and are in there for the same reasons. So now moving on to uh, beyond boards into entrepreneurship. That's another area that's gonna be available to people who decide to roll out of security or any kind of technology executive position. So how do you prep for that at T minus five? Number one is just about building technology. You know, I mentioned a lot when you're feeding back that you want to look for feedback that's germane to a large audience and not just you, so that when you're giving it to a founder, they can build products that they can monetize optimally and not just satisfy you. You can flip that around a bit too. When you do have a problem or a solution set that would only help you, build that in-house. 
It's not going to happen on the outside because it's not going to be profitable. And you're not in the business of selling cybersecurity solutions today. So have that built in-house. That's going to give you the experience of managing a team, of defining requirements, of understanding what happens with deadlines when you start to miss them. And potentially, depending on what you do with it, you might even get some profit and loss management if you use it to serve customers or you do cost allocation within your business or something like that. Another important area is to embrace founders and VCs and learn from them on the entrepreneurship bit. So I talked a bit about investing and learning about the investment side from a VC, but also just talk to them about founders and about those difficult decisions that you make as an entrepreneur of when to quit your day job, so to speak, when to raise money versus bootstrapping, uh, when to decide to hire your first employee. So use relationships with founders and VCs to ask questions about those different phases and companies that you know so you can learn from them. Because if you want to pivot into that yourself, the more that you learn and the more relationships that you build up front, the more comfort you're going to have going into that. Two more areas I want to talk about. Teaching. So teaching is something that a lot of us start to think about later in our career for a number of reasons. One is that as you go through formal education, that's really the model that you're served with. And so you're likely to aspire to it just because it's what you've seen as the adult in the room when you're growing up. And then secondly, it really is the pinnacle of your own educational pursuit. So, you know, there's that classic different strata of degrees that you can acquire but when you ultimately teach, it feels like you're finally mission accomplished along that continuum. And especially if you teach in the type of discipline that you had studied under as well. So if you're an engineering, teach there. If you're in law, teach in law school, that sort of thing. So what do you do at T minus five so you can become a professor at T equals zero? Well, for starters, join university industry advisory boards. Definitely. Universities are hungry, especially in cybersecurity, to get some expertise from the industry. What are people actually looking for? What kind of solutions? What kind of students? What kind of things do you want us to train students that are going to come through our programs about? So join those as early as you can. And yes, the universities are often after money and they'll want to see if your company is willing to invest and entertain that. And if it's appropriate for you, by all means, pursue it. But that's independent from whether or not they want your input you'll be valued to be on an industry advisory board. So you should seek that out at the universities that you really admire. Help them out with their curricula. So talk to them about what the syllabus looks like, what the class array looks like, and try to inject into that little bits that'll help. Be a guest speaker. Come out and guest lecture during these and bring your viewpoint to it. Students love to hear about what's actually going on and help judge things. There's contests, there's venture capital, little mini mock uh, startup sessions that are going on all the time nowadays at universities. There's student projects and they want people from the outside and in industry to be part of the boards that are judging those. Do all of that to stay close to universities. And then when you leave and it's time and you're actually interested in teaching, you'll already have all those relationships. So start that early on. Now, finally, I want to talk a little bit about volunteering. Now, obviously, volunteering in general goes far beyond cybersecurity. And there's tons of opportunities where you can use your experiences, your skills, your personality, your hobbies, all of that to help society. And I encourage that. And everyone should explore whatever method is best for them. But what I'm going to talk about a bit is just what's unique to cybersecurity. And generally, I mean, you can immediately, your mind could go to how do I help secure organizations? And that's something to always be on the lookout for. And there may be more organizations that have a type of volunteer method to actually help places get secure in the future. But I don't see a ton of that yet. 
The opportunities today are more about helping the workforce. So helping people get into cybersecurity. And there are no shortage of free or assisted academic programs that are helping people move into the job market. And they very wisely pivoted to technology. You'll find a lot of coding boot camps that help people hit the ground running in software engineering without a four-year degree. And a lot of those programs have now embraced cybersecurity as well. And they are trying to teach students how they can be effective in something like an incident response position or an application security position or risk management day one. They're looking for help. And they would love for you to come out there as a guest lecturer. That's somewhere where you're going to have even more leeway to influence the curriculum. Get in there, help them design their programs. Start out with your own job descriptions. Figure out what you're trying to hire for and work backwards from that. Map that into these programs so that you can start developing the skills that people are going to need to be ready to help. And then likewise, recruit from these organizations. You know, we've got amazing talent out of programs like Year Up, which is exactly what I'm talking about. Where people have come through there in a relatively short amount of time and been able to be extremely impactful in the workforce. And I've seen people go on to very successful careers coming through that path. I would spend just as much time in those organizations as you do in formal universities or training programs. And that part isn't even all volunteering because there you're actually helping your company out more than anything. But on the education and actually feeding back to people, make sure you invest time there. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in and certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes.